Good morning, everybody. We're happy to have you with us this morning in the uh, uh, first of two sessions that are being sponsored by the Church Planting Commission. Uh, this session is uh, entitled "What Older Men Wish Younger Men Knew About Themselves." And so, about them. So, this is uh, a very interesting session. And uh, I have to say that one of our esteemed panelists uh, said that he needed a table because he wanted to open up his computer. He's got a lot of notes. So apparently he's got a lot of things to say. <laughs> and we're really glad for that. Uh, and, and frankly, that's exactly what this session is all about. Uh, the motivation for this uh, pairing of sessions uh, comes from uh, the long-standing and oft-repeated observation about the gaps in generations that exist within the IFCA. And it's been said for many years that I've been attending the convention that uh, we seem to have an older demographic that tends to the conventions. And, uh, and how does that reflect in what's happening in our churches? I think it is an accurate picture of what's happening in our churches. We see an aging uh, profile of a lot of our IFCA congregations. And, uh, and yet, at the same time, uh, there are uh, clear signs that, that there is a younger demographic that is, that is generating. Stop by the nursery this morning. There are 13 little ones in the 0 to 3 nursery at convention this year. Uh, 4 to 12, I think, is the next breakdown, and there's 30-some children in that particular department. And um, I, if I may, I can say I'm thrilled to see it, and I'm thrilled that someone else is leading it, you know? <laughs> and again, I'm reflecting a bias of an age. I'm not sure what I'm reflecting there, uh, except to say that it's exciting to see that families are accessing their opportunity to attend convention. And then, and then, of course, whatever extrapolations that can then indicate to us about the rest of our fellowship, it's an, it's an interesting thing. But that also means that because of this changing uh, demographic or this uh, observation about demographic in our uh, fellowship is that there are lots of differences and there are changes that are happening. And as we are looking around at the uh, American Christian profile and you see all these kinds of things that are happening in churches today and, and uh, churches that are popping up all across the, the entire landscape of our country, things are very different than what they were just simply 10, 15 years ago. And so, if it's a reflection of a mindset, uh, you know, if people are going to uh, assign stereotypes and, and traits of stereotypes to generations, you know, how much of that is real or how much of that is perceived. Uh, and the only way for that to be settled in our minds is to create a dialogue uh, in our own family about what those differences might be, and then what values are represented in this spread of generations that the other side may need to account for or see through a different perspective. And so that's the purpose of these two sessions. And so I selected Ken Chip Chase to be the moderator of the older men panel, what they have in their hearts that they would like younger men to know about them. And then in our next session, we're going to trade roles. I'll be moderating a younger panel that they would like to share things so that they would wish older men would know about them. And so that's what we're going to do today. All right? Ken, the session is yours. All right. I uh, just want to just start a little bit with uh, introductions with, our, uh, with the men on our panel. Um, for, we have uh, Pastor Leonard Hale, who has been the uh, pastor of Sherwood Bible Church in the uh, Kansas City area uh, for many years, over, uh, over 30 years. Um, how many years exactly do you know? 
37. 37 years. He's been there a long time. That's uh, Sherwood Bible Church is where uh, I attended uh, church when I was a student at Calvary Bible College and Theological Seminary. Uh, so Pastor Hale was a bit of a mentor uh, for me uh, during my time there. And we have uh, Dr. Elwood Chipchase, who, of course, that's my grandpa. And, uh, but he has uh, served in a variety of roles over the years. Uh, he was a pastor for 38 years, served as president of Calvary Bible College and Theological Seminary. Of course, now serves as uh, the chaplain uh, Bibleville Conference Grounds in Texas. Uh, we have Pastor Dave Laborde, who has been uh, the pastor of Community Bible Church for 34 years. Is that right? 34 years. Uh, and then um, uh, Dr. Dodds, uh, who's uh, served at uh, Calvary uh, Bible College and University now uh, for many, many years in a variety of roles and uh, part of the chair of the ministry uh, studies. And uh, he was my preaching professor uh, at Calvary. Uh, so I've learned a lot uh, for him as well. He's also served as a pastor and uh, Air Force chaplain, both uh, Air Force Reserves and active duty. Uh, so variety of ministry experiences among them, uh, but they're all on this panel because of their uh, longevity in ministry and faithfulness in ministry. And uh, a lot of, I think they have a lot, uh, a lot of experience to share uh, that we can learn and glean from. Uh, the questions that we have for us this morning uh, for the uh, for the panel. Uh, Many of them deal with uh, stereotypes uh, that many younger men might have. Like as I have conversations with some of my peers, is some of the things that we might uh, think through or talk about, or uh, how some uh, some perceptions uh, that there are of, of some of the younger men. So we wanted to give uh, the the opportunity uh, just to just to see how uh, some young, older men might respond to some of these things and get uh, their ideas on philosophies of ministry, how they view things within the church, within. Uh, just practical uh, ministry life, ministry preferences, approaches to various things. Uh, and so the first question and, uh, that I'd like to ask is, uh, there's a stereotype of older men. In fact, I think we've heard a little bit about it this week, uh, that how it seems to me from the perspective of younger men sometimes, that older men have uh, a tendency to have this Lone Ranger mentality. Okay, That's the stereotype that exists. Uh, there's, they don't know how to collaborate well. Uh, so the question is, is that a fair stereotype? And uh, just uh, elaborate on your answer a little bit, if, if you don't mind. So um, I don't know if anybody has one wants to go first, but... Um, it's not a stereotype, it's true. A stereotype <laughs> is true, all right. Please elaborate. Uh, it, it depends on the demographic of the church. Uh, small church, yeah, you got to be a lone ranger. I mean, you're, you're it, so. But when you start developing, growing, adding staff, that adjustment process is sometimes a little difficult. Mm. Uh, meaning you still have to operate independently if you just have a part-time person, but then a full-time person in addition to you. Uh, and there's always that truth that one person has to sit on the front of the horse. <laughs> meaning you want to work as a team, but ultimately there's a place that it has to stop Well, again, I think there is some truth to the stereotype, uh, but at the same time, it just depends on, on one's perspective. Uh, I think it, it, that's a very important part of it. Um, the, uh, in, what, in what perspective are, are we looking at? Inside the local church or, or between... Um, Peers, pastor to pastor, um, 
And I think sometimes uh, the, the younger guys uh, don't necessarily get around um, older guys. For me, and, and what I was thinking here is, is uh, uh, peer to peer, uh, when we look, come to an ISDA convention, uh, Henry mentioned that things are changing, but I've also had, had friends come and, and look around and say, oh, it is a bunch of old guys. Mm. Or even to the regional. You know, well, I don't want to go. It's just a bunch of old guys. And so um, sometimes I think that that if their perspective is we're lone wolves, uh, it's it's because they're not the ones who are willing to come mm -hmm. and participate. I, I say, what a great opportunity. If you're the only young guy and there are 10 old guys, come on along and, and sit and listen and learn and, and interact with these, these men. I don't... I don't think that people really desire to be lone wolves, and if they do, then let them be lone wolves and die out in the wilderness. <laughs> I mean, why, why even have an impact or try to get close to those guys? So I, I think there needs to be overcoming that I just don't need to interact with guys my own age. I think there's a great opportunity, and, and so I think they're the ones who, who need to come and, and interact with the older generation. Because I don't, I don't know of very many people who would say, no, I don't want to interact with, with young men. And to collaborate, that was another word. I was a little confused as what what we meant by that word when we got. So that, those are my thoughts initially. Good. Well, I'm looking out here, I'm looking, I see uh, Ken, I see Dwight. Our fathers were the same generation. <clears throat> and I don't know how you guys were told, but I was told, <clears throat> pardon me, not to get too close to people. I was told not to make close friends, not in the church. <clears throat> and um, by five years in the ministry, I knew that was wrong. And my wife and I talked it over. But the generation above us had said that. I don't know how you guys were told, but uh, don't make real close friends. You can't trust people. When I went to my first IFCA convention 60 years ago, we said the IFCA is a bunch of old guys. <laughs> 60 years ago. Okay? And I can think some of the old guys then. And you know what? They were old guys. <laughs> but you know what? Now we are. And we know them. Thank you very much. And I look back. <clears throat> if I was the best friend cat category, I learned also that I needed friends. And I felt... My friends were in the ministry. My friends were also in the churches I pastored. But my best friend was always my wife. I never shared personal things with anybody other than my wife. The friends of pastors, when I was young, I loved the older guys. And now today I admire these younger guys. I'm thrilled with the younger guys we have today. I really am. I remember when Ron was a young guy. Now here he's up with us. I saw God work in that generation. And so, uh, yes, there's a maybe a lone wolf uh, attitude. I, I agree with you, Dave. I really do. I think some people, that's the way they are. And I know one pastor whose attitude was, I don't want to be without anybody. I want to be by myself. Well, I say, go ahead, but I think that's crazy. I think of the conventions and the values I've had in coming 
and busy with the older guys like Alex Montoya. And I'm older than he is. But he was a friend. Best friend? No. Good friend. Absolutely. And I believe that's the way we should be. Uh, but now, you said the stereotype uh, that we are the Lone Ranger mentality. Okay, some did. But we have some today that are Lone Rangers. And they're not old men. So I think we've got to be careful with that. Now my younger brother. <laughs> um, I'm going to approach this just a little different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with Dr. Dodds on there. I think that there, there, there is a biblical basis for this. Um, as I think through the scriptures, the pastor is a shepherd. I don't know any flock that has six shepherds. But only one shepherd. <clears throat> and by the very nature of that, that motif that we have in the scriptures, that's the way the people view you equally as well. So that reinforces <clears throat> a little bit of the Lone Ranger thing because the people are looking at you that way. If they got a question, they're not running all over the place. They're going to come to the pastor and they're going to ask him, what he thinks about this. So I think that reinforces, to some degree, the Lone Ranger concept and the Lone Ranger thing. So I don't think it's 100% a bad thing. I think there is a truth and a real value in this. As I view myself as a shepherd, I've pastored now almost 50 years. As I view myself in that role, um, I welcome that role. I welcome the role, the opportunity, and I tell my my people again and again, thank you, thank you, that I can sit up there in my ivory tower hour after hour studying the scriptures, and then they come on a Sunday morning to, to learn the truth, to be fed, because that's a responsibility of a shepherd to make sure that the people get a good pasture to, to chew, you know, food to chew on and to be there, and you run out, and you're visiting people, and you're th- you're doing that stuff all the time as a good shepherd. So in a sense of the word, I view the shepherd as a lone wolf. Hmm. And I don't see it as a negative, but I love getting together with other men and, and sharing and interacting. And I remember in the heart of America region, when I first moved to Kansas City, there were two of us at the meeting. Now we have a great region, and you just stay with it, and you grow, and we feed one another. But that's my perspective. I, okay. I'm not going to back away from being a shepherd. Yeah. No way. Yeah, go ahead. Well, and it's, it's also important to know that not only are we shepherds, we're also we are our sheep, too. Mm. <laughs> And so it's tough to be like a, that too. <laughs> 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 to be a sheep and a shepherd. Yeah. How do we understand the role of elders in the midst of that? Because the elders, you know, as, as Peter says, he charges the elders to shepherd the flock of God. So the elders, in a sense, are to be shepherds as well. How do we understand that dynamic? Any thoughts? Well, I would respond to it that way. I think we always have to remember that our elders are volunteers. And they have limited amount of time. And I think sometimes we forget that kind of dynamic that uh, I love my men. 
And when they come, they give up meeting times and things like this. But these are men with families and busy lives and things like this. And I need to respect that. And that's a way that I shepherd them by mm. not putting loads on them that they can't even bear and handle. Dr. Dodds? Yeah. You know, that's always going to be a struggle you're going to have, uh, whether you're the pastor and there's nobody else on your staff, or you've got multiple staff and a group of elders. You're, that, that tension of these people that have limited time, the lay leaders, I'm going to use that term, uh, that should be involved with people's lives, but yet we have limited time until we have a board that makes decisions more than deals with people. And, and you're going to struggle with that tension. You need to. So it has to be a team. I'm not the only pastor. I'm not the only shepherd. We all have to be involved with people. Uh, the dynamic of what I was beginning with is what I hear in uh, maybe a generational expectation of ministry is it's going to be more relational on the team. Hmm. And how do you build relationship in a team? Well, we all the senior pastors have said, yeah, we've got to have a team work there. Ultimately, the buck stops somewhere. Is what the reality of the decision is what I was talking about. But yeah, you want to build a team there, um, it, but it can't be all consensus on that team all the time. So it, it, that's something you have to work through as a team. Some teams seem to work over time. Most teams don't work. You mean someone usually has to step up and be that hmm. leader. So when you say collaborative, that's what I was thinking of in that context. And you want to do that with the lay leaders as well as you know, your new staff. Uh, the next question has to do with um, approaches of preaching, and uh, keep going. Okay. Uh, approaches to preaching. Um, there's another stereotype out there uh, that uh, it seems, uh, from the younger man's perspective, that many older men in their preaching are much more focused on exegesis and explanation of a text to the neglect of application. So, my question for our panelists is: What is your how would you characterize your generation's approach to a text and homiletics? Well, I'll go. I'll go first. Well, I hope that stereotype is correct. I, I hope that's what is really going on. My fear is it's not. Um, we we have we have been given. Revelation from God, and that's where we feed our people from. I, there are so many verses, you know, Paul to Timothy. Timothy, what you heard from me, you you commit this to faithful men. And, uh, you know, be diligent to rightly divide the word of truth uh, over and over and over again. It's all about preach the word. And, and so I hope that we are leaving a legacy that, Man, these guys are exegetically, you know, verse by verse explaining the word of God to people. Um, and, and application, look, Paul wasn't writing seminary notes when he was, you know, writing scripture. He was writing to churches because they had problems and needs. And so the application, as far as I see it, is right in the text. I mean, it, it's built upon doctrine, but Paul was writing to solve issues uh, and so if you're faithful to, to preach exegetically through all of the scripture, New Testament especially, to the, 
then then you're covering application. So I'm I'm not sure, you know, so I took from this, if we're looking at application, meaning that the people's needs have got to be the focus of our preaching, and so we approach it, well, what do my people need, mm-hmm. what they're hurting, what we're what we are are undermining and what we're doing maybe unaware is we're flipping Matthew six thirty three on its head seek first the kingdom of God all these other things will be added to you but when we but when we make it an applicational focus of what my people need at this point in time what we're instilling in them is their needs are more important than what they're called to be on on, on this planet and so and so we're feeding this sense of of this idea of God as a genie in a bottle I've got a need I'll rub the bottle and he comes out and poof my needs are taken care of. What we need to do is instill in the people, look, yeah, we've got issues. You're always going to have issues. We're in a fallen world, but what we're called to is something not about ourselves and our own needs. Those things have got to be put aside to accomplish a greater objective. And and how do you do that other than exe, you know, exegetically preaching through the text? So I hope, I my hope and prayer is that that is a true stereotype. I hope it's true of every one of us here. I followed a pastor who never applied the word. Never. He always gave good exegesis and good explanation, never applied. And he would always say, you go home and apply it as you see fit. And the people had a lot of knowledge, but had no practical living. And that was, that was probably the strongest case I ever saw of that viewpoint. I don't feel that was true. I felt that as I grew up, I got a balance. And I found that men, <clears throat> as I was growing up, would teach the word well. <clears throat> and then as a result, young people of my generation were going off to Bible school, college, and seminary. And there was a strong application. So I believe if we leave out the application, we're, we're missing something. And um, I, I, agree, I, I agree with him. We've got to do correct exegesis and explanation. That is absolutely essential. But we must also apply it. So what? Okay, explain the text, read the text, explain the text, apply the text. And um, to say they all did it in the past, no, I I would not say. Uh, That may be true in some respects. Um, I remember John Drummond, who pastored in Detroit. Uh, John was a factory worker. You you knew John, didn't you, uh, George? You what? Oh, really? Well, he he was a factory worker and started a Bible class. And his Bible class grew and he outgrew his house and he went to a storefront. By the time I met him, he had an 800-seat auditorium that was filled every Sunday. And when he taught the book of Philippians at school, I thought, man, where'd this guy come from? He made the book live. We He explained the scripture. It was so good. It was so rich. And he gave practical application. Now, here was a man who didn't have any formal training, as we think of. But at that time, he was serving as chairman of the board of Detroit Bible College and with no education himself. But he was a man of the word. And before he'd study a book, he'd go to the pulpit with all the translations he had in his library and read the translations into a a tape recorder. Remember those? Remember tape recorders, you guys? And then every day, as he got dressed in the morning and shaved and everything, he would play the text back and learn the text, learn the text, learn the text, so that he knew the scriptures well. 
and he lived it. And and I think to a certain extent the stereotype is, stereotype is correct, but not thoroughly because I've seen many men who did well in explanation, exegesis, and and application. And I think we need to do the same. Um, faulty exegesis leads to faulty application. That's right. And and you um, you have to explain the text. A couple items that I think of when I think of uh, the whole preaching and application, we don't want to leave out. The power of the word is found in prayer. I think one of the greatest weaknesses of the church today is it is no longer a praying church. And the church is lacking power. And if we view that power and we're trying in the in a humanistic way to resolve that issue, I think we're going down the wrong path. I think we need to really be focusing on calling the church to really pray and see the power of the word of functioning in people's lives. I think the other thing, too, is we've forgotten about the third person of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit is the one who really brings application. I know in my life it's the Holy Spirit that really helped me to see how to use the Word of God and how to apply the Word of God in my life and brought me under conviction and that kind of thing. So I think that you put prayer and the and the Holy Spirit together. I, I long to see a revival in the church. And the, and the reason for that is we need to become a praying church once again. And then we'll see the Holy Spirit working and using the word of God in ways we never, ever imagined. It doesn't, it doesn't rest on my intelligence and my ingenuity. It, this is a spiritual battle, not a battle of the flesh and of the uh, cognitive and the intellect. This is a battle that is a huge battle that is now facing us. And that, that's where I'm at. I, I, we've got to explain the text as clear as we can, but as God is the one who moves in the hearts of people. Dr. Dodd, yeah. like professor. Yeah, at school. Uh, yeah. I see students that uh, they're great at exegesis, and then the, like Dr. Chip Chase is saying, so what? Why? What's the the uh, imperative? What's the spirit wanting to say to the people in the text? And they never get to the point. And then I hear students that just sort of bounce off the text and go to application and be a Dr. Phil type sermon yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> in the Christian context. And, and then you walk away going, where did he see that in the text? I think. Um, I, as I saw your statement here, uh, I heard pain. You know, over the years of preaching and trying to apply and sometimes being specific and totally missing people or saying it wrong, because people come up and talk to you or send you those nice little notes afterwards, and uh, may maybe you were insensitive in how you said it or what you tried to apply, or just it just didn't have any knowledge. So your preaching has to be in the context of knowing people. And then out of that knowing people, you sense the burden of the text. And all right, so I'm talking to the choir here. But if I'm not knowing people, now let me throw another dynamic in. The, your church dynamic, the more you know your people, you get up and preach, and uh, there, there's that relational dynamic. As the church would grow, your connection with the people gets a little less 
which requires you to be more relational. If you understand what I'm saying, you have to be more real. You have to connect with people, but they don't know you. All right, so there's that pull to illustrations, that pull to real life. You've got to watch that, though, if you're moving away from the reality of the text and the exegesis of the passage. So it's, it's a love-hate relationship with the text. And, and application, it's a love-hate relationship with knowing people and wanting to spend time, needing to spend time in the text. But we got to do them both. Got to know the people, and and so we know the truth, or we got to know the text so we know the truth, and then it's spoken to people. That's my encouragement. Good. Uh, next question has to do with um, with discipleship. You know, there's been a variety of uh, discipleship methods and styles over the years. Many books have been written. Um, and uh, just different approaches to it. Uh, I'd be curious to see uh, amongst our panelists how uh, how they approach discipleship and how they might think that their generations uh, approach the, the topic of discipleship. And feel free to define how you understand what discipleship is as you uh, give your answer as well. Go ahead. Your turn to go first. Really? <laughs> <clears throat> Phil in our church who had been through school, and was working on an advanced degree in seminary. He was asked to write a paper. He chose to write his paper on discipleship. And he said, I've been in churches all my life, <clears throat> good churches, <clears throat> pardon me. And he said, I've heard people talk about discipleship, but I've never seen it. And he said, I've never seen any discipleship till I came here. I thought that was interesting. I never thought of it that way. What we did is I had men coming in the morning. Um, you have a problem when you have a group of people, and you can't take every one of them one time. So I had a group of men on Thursday morning and a group of men on Friday morning. They came to our house. And uh, somebody said, what book do you study? There's only one book I want to study, the Word of God. And we took the Word of God, and I had seven questions on every passage, and we'd take eight or ten, twelve verses, and we'd work that passage through. And uh, we'd go around the table, and everybody had to take part. Interesting thing, we had two unsaved guys that came, and both of them got saved as a result of it. And the purpose wasn't evangelism. The purpose was discipleship, to help these guys grow in the Lord. It takes time, and it took us getting up at 4.30 on Thursday and Friday mornings, it took my wife time to fix breakfast for them. But when they sat down at the table at 6.30 and we prayed, we didn't talk food. The food went around and was served. But we started with question number one. And I started with this man or this man or that man. And everybody answered all the questions. And the, down the end of the seventh question was, what am I going to do this week about it? And personally, I think discipleship is a lost art. I've seen books on discipleship. I've read what guys have said about discipleship. I don't know if I know anything about it at all. I just know I wanted to ministry with my men. I called a man in, in Rialto, California, near where I was pastoring, and he had a great ministry with his men. He had 200 men in his ministry and was doing a great job. And I called him up, and I asked him what he did. He was very gracious, and he told me his whole program. It was wonderful. And so when I hung up, my wife said, what would you learn? I said, I learned I can't do it his way. <laughs> so what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to yell something that's me. Now, my program is simply me. You can't do what I do, and I can't do what you do. We're different people. 
But I started something with the men and just a small group. The first time I did it, I had five groups a week. I met five mornings a week with men in the, in the church. I was in San Bernardino. And I mean, it was running as ragged, but it's worth it. It's worth it with the men. Because if you build your men, you'll build your families. And that's how I approached it. Now, when it comes to follow-up, you got to start with follow-up of new Christians. But when that group of men I had at Cicero, I'd have 13, 14 men around the table. Um, in that group, I had a seminary graduate, I had a medical doctor, and I had a guy who was just saved out of a drug life. And they were all in the same group. And they all gained together, and they all grew in the Lord. I, I don't know. Um, that raises an interesting question. Uh, if you had a preference, would you prefer one-on-one -on -one discipleship or group discipleship? Well, yes. <laughs> some, isn't that right? Some people need the one-on-one. -on -one, and I've done that too. Um, so I, I, I can't say I prefer one over the other. I do. You do what you have to do at the time. Uh, yeah, straighten things um, out now. What's that? Straighten things out now. <laughs> I think uh, one of the great dangers in discipleship is we institutionalize it. Mm -hmm. It's not an institution. <clears throat> it's right. not a program. It's a relationship. That's exactly right. And I think right if if we think of it as a program, we're in trouble immediately because it's building relationships. And so I've had wonderful opportunities to, to work with people on a one-on-one -on -one yep. because that's the kind of relationship they needed and that I would give to them. Uh, for years and years, I've uh, taught a Bible class on Thursday nights. Almost all my elders are in that class consistently for years. That's how I've been able to build, build the elders. And we have a wonderful relationship we meet at 7. We don't get started the Bible study till about, about 8 o'clock because they're socializing, interacting with one another. And we have a great prayer time. And uh, so I've been able to help and teach them about how to pray and that type of thing. And then we'll have an hour study. But it's just been a great time for building the men. But some of the greatest discipleship I've done is mowing grass with somebody. Or just seeing a need this guy needs and going over and helping him and getting involved and, and doing those kinds of things on a one-on-one. -on -one. i got a, a one man right now. I've been doing that with the church. And I take every opportunity I can when we are together. We never separate without having a word of prayer together. I'm teaching him how to be a prayer warrior and that kind of thing. So don't think of discipleship as an institution. It's a relationship. And every time you meet somebody, that's a discipleship opportunity. That's right. I'd, I'd add in there, have a plan, though. Um, guys, through the years, uh, ladies, let's get together. And they're together. Guys, why? You know, I've got a busy life. Uh, so I, I found when, when I'm working with guys, you got to be a little bit more intentional. As well as you got to be intentional about why you're together. You talk about your elders. You talk about this group of men. That, you know, you had a, an objective where they were at in life. You know, uh, when I saw your statement there, 
I go, how is our generation doing discipleship differently? Yeah, that sort of hit me funny. Because it's a it's a both and when it comes to there needs to be some structure, intentionality about your discipleship. Uh, you, just because you meet together for coffee, is that necessarily discipleship? Yes, no. All right, so what am I feeling that the Lord would want to accomplish? But then on the other side, we're all saying it, it. It's relationship, life on life, and getting that person around Jesus Christ and being flexible with it all. So I, it's a sort of both end from my perspective. Um, discipleship, defining it, I define it as Matthew 28, right? Um, make disciples, baptize them, connect them <coughs> to the body in a public way. And then second of all, teach them to observe all things I've commanded. So it's, it goes beyond teaching. Now we've got to teach them how to do what's been commanded. And that takes just time of being with people. Um, whether it's structured, I teach Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and we have a three-hour Bible Institute on Thursday nights. And so I don't need to... Well, i got to be careful. Um, that's, that's a lot of teaching. Go ahead. In, 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 in a educational structure and so what i what i need from those five or six sessions is time to help them see how this actually works out in life so there are guys in my church who who put together old cars they they love old cars they've restored old cars that's what they're doing i i could care less about cars Um, i I, I don't i know i i'm sorry brother but but i'll tell you what I'll, I'll take my car out there and say, hey, I need my brakes changed. Yeah, come on, I'm out. And we change my brakes together. I'll go out and whatever. Um, another guy, his father passed away. Uh, he had been divorced a couple times. He was single and committed to being single for the rest of his life. He had come to know Christ after those times. His father, who he took care of, passed away, crushed him. He was a fisherman. So I go out and fish. I, I don't care about fishing. Um, but you sit on the pier at night, he, you know, with lights and bring the, bring the fish in. And, and so there we sat in, in November drinking coffee and freezing, you know, but, but there you are for them to talk, uh, go out mushroom hunting. Now that I do love to do. (laughs) And so I go out in the woods hunting mushrooms with, with guys. Uh, so, but, but it's in those instances and those types of things where you find out what they're interested in, and rather than bringing them into your world, which to me is a classroom setting, um, I need to go into their world, wherever they're at, and and work on their house, work on, you know, go do drywall for them or with them, uh, and, and get into their world and be out with them, whether it's over a meal or wherever we're going, whatever we're doing, so that they see how I act in various situations and circumstances. And, and almost always the uh, conversation about the Lord and the Bible comes up. And so, so it just gives you an, more of an applicational uh, point to what you do in the classroom. Now you're in their world. And so even if, you know, Deuteronomy uh, chapter, what is it, six, where, where, hey, when you're walking, when you're with children, of course, when you're walking, laying down, whatever you're doing, and the way, show them. And so I think that, to me, is what discipleship is. But I appreciate that. It's, not, it's, it's a relationship with people and helping them to see how you implement what you learn 
and in your everyday life. And, yeah. I like this guy. Do you know what I like about him? He's everlastingly at it. And you young guys, if you can take an example, listen to what he said. Look now the number of times. I know some young guys, oh, one time a week is all I can do. You need to be st studying for messages all the time. Did you hear Alex Montoya the other day? He's always studying. I heard him say that years ago, and I agree with him. You're always studying. And sometimes you, you're stuck into a situation where you just have to give out, out of the overflow of your life. But we can't be lazy. The thing I hate in the ministry is laziness. And uh, it's getting up in the morning, getting going, getting going. I'm a morning person. Somebody asked me who's a morning person the other day. I'm a morning person. My wife's a night person. But when we had a time we had to get up in the morning, we did and she did. And we've been in ministry together. But I like what he said. He's, you know, it's, it's everything we do. Life is discipleship. Whether we're cutting lawn with them or fishing with them. I don't want to do either one. Okay? Uh, that's just not me. But, but it, it fits a different personality. And so you can't follow my program, and you can't follow his program, but you get at it and you say, Lord, what am I going to do with my people? And how am I going to do it? Enough. Very good. Thank you. Um, there's a time when um, the American church was marred in what became known as the worship wars. Are you any familiar with the term worship wars? Several of you? So, you know, just, just the, the battle between what style of music are we going to sing in church, right? The old hymns, contemporary songs, how are we going to understand uh, music in the church? So, a question is for our panelists. How, uh, how do you uh, view the worship wars as they stand today? Are we still in them, or is the battle shifted? How, or is it over? How would you, uh, how would you approach the, Come on, the topic of that? You go ahead. Yeah. You cover that one. That's good. Yeah. You got stuck with that one. I, th I think there's uh, truth in the fact that there is a worship war. I think it's because of a lack of compassion. I think the, we, we, we are so driven by our own likes that we're not willing to reach across the table and see what somebody else likes. But we get stuck on our own little thing. We say, this is the way... You know, one of the hardest problems we have when we get older is we resist change. We don't want to expand. We're trying to downsize. Like the table over there, all those books being given away free. That's right. Please take some with you. <laughs> and because as we get older that we resist change, yep. we're threatened by that. And we don't sit back and say, what's the value in this? Why are they wanting to do it? One of the dynamics, and I noticed it in, in the last night in a meeting, I found it amusing. Us older people are sitting like this. The young people are sitting like this, and they were reset. Some of them wanted to raise their hands real high, but they weren't going to do it at IFCA. <laughs> <laughs> but but they, they, were, they were going like this, and, and we would look at that. We, we question things like this. But what we need to do is step back and, and look at the heart of the people. You know, young people are very enthusiastic towards the music part itself. They're, they're, 
it isn't that they're diminishing the words, but they love the music and the, and the chords and all that. That's a great thing. God loves music. Listen to the birds in the morning. Listen to all the other things that are going on. He loves music. And we ought to love music. And you know what? We need to listen to one another and appreciate how one another appreciate music. I don't want to see this as a war. I want to see this as a, a collective front worshiping God with many different aspects and many different kinds of things. I resist, even with my age on Sunday morning. Sometimes I'd like to go like this to God and say, Oh, God, I love you. I've done that in my preaching. And then we've had to call the emergency people for some <laughs> But we, we, need to, we, we need to stop this kind of stuff that's going on. Let's have a great heart of compassion for differences. God made each of us unique individuals. Psalm 139. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Let's appreciate our differences, not resist them. I had a daughter that majored in piano performance in college, and uh, we're driving back to college one time, specifically driving back to college, take her back to college. And I asked her about the worship wars issue going on, and just without skipping a beat, she says the reason is because of uh, technology. The way they can write music has flipped the melody lines. All right, so that was part of it. It opened up uh, a, a way of singing and musicality, and we've all struggled with songs that are great sung by a soloist but horrible with the congregation. <laughs> all right, um, and we've got somewhat past that. Uh, the other thing I was thinking of. So we got to think of that too. Is there is there just something else going on that we can do music differently of a different generation? You know, that's part of it. The other one is music is so emotional. Uh, in college, when I was back in college, a long time ago, I saw a gentleman. We went over for worship service at the seminary across the street, and this gentleman had had a stroke, could not put two words together, could not say a sentence, but when they started playing a hymn, he sang it word perfectly. And I asked about that, and I said, it's because of the connection in the brain. You're able to do that. So music has such an emotional connection. We've got to appreciate that. That's just exactly what you're saying. That at those emotionally significant times in different generations, that's part of it. That music meant something to me. So I always had the philosophy, in the corporate worship service, I want to sing everybody's music. So we had a variety there. And we, those that would come up and politic for their version of it, you know, we uh, would have to lovingly help them. And then we as elders would have to make a decision as to what style would be emphasized, because there were changes that were going on. But, uh, you know, you, you have to be sensitive to how people might be singing it. Nursing home services, do you go in and sing praise courses in a nursing home? Not usually. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> they, they wouldn't connect. So you want to sing their music. That's an illustration of what I'm saying. So we got to be sensitive to one another and appreciate one another and affirm those. You're, you're doing more than just singing a song. You're connecting with a, a deeply felt truth in their life through medium of music. Yeah, and it's a great opportunity to practice, you know, uh, 1 Corinthians 8 through uh, first part of 11 uh, and Romans 14 where, you know, hey, 
don't judge and don't condemn, don't be angry, and and teach those principles in that in that context. Uh, I, I kind of took this a little bit differently as far as the worship wars. As uh, yeah, there's always that tension style, and you know what you guys were mentioning, but I, I guess I took this to mean where where what is called worship and limited just to music is taking over our service. Almost what. Um, uh, uh, Tony uh, spoke to, uh, and and that is of concern when when the shift becomes this is what we're going to do, and takes away from from the preaching of the word. Uh, that's where I see the real war, not so much in style and and that, that yeah the balance, and that's why I, I got from that the balance shifting away, and I think. That's a fight we've got to fight and um, and hold our ground. Uh, but also, then in in I'm preaching through the book of Colossians in Colossians chapter three verse sixteen, where Paul tells the congregation, "Look, let the word of God uh, dwell among you as a congregation richly." And then he goes on to say, "Teaching and admonishing one another in hymns." songs and, and psalms and so that you know when those folks back then didn't have the word of god that they could just open up on a you know get up in the morning and go out on your porch and 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 read the word they didn't have that and so how how was the word going to be instilled in the people to to get them thinking about it and it was through the vehicle of music and so uh, music is a very indoctrinational type <laughs> tool and so Paul said, use music as a means of, of teaching each other and admonishing, warning, even in our music, warning each other. So, so music is a very powerful tool, and, and it ought to be used correctly in, in terms of getting at that very thing. Let's, let's use music as a means of teaching and, and admonishing each other. Uh, and, and, and as far as the styles, it, you know, I agree. You got to be gracious and just teach people to be gracious. So those are my thoughts. Okay, and then add thirty to forty-five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Five ways to judge music. Five ways to judge music. Number one, the message. Is the message correct? I get some. Some songs are so boring and so poorly done and so poorly written, but the message is number one. Okay. Secondly, it has to be carried by a good melody. I was in a service one Sunday morning where they sang four songs and they were all different in words, but their music was all the same and it was like a funeral dirge. It was horrible. Music was awful. There was no melody. You can't follow it. Thirdly is uh, the harmony. Uh, harmony is beautiful. I mean, you, you hear some of these people. One thing we enjoyed about the strings the other night was there, there was a melody, but there was a harmony of the other instruments coming in and that's what god has done with us with with all different voices you have the soprano alto tenor bass basically but good harmony and there's a lot of good arranging done in music that's important the other one is the rhythm what is the rhythm i remember one time a guy said if there's syncopation it's of the devil oh really the hallelujah chorus is syncopation okay another thing about the hallelujah chorus that people hate because it's Modern music is repetition. You know the 7-Eleven accusation? 
I heard a guy explain what re contemporary music was, and he explained to the letter, Hallelujah Chorus, repetition, same kind of same same thing over and over and over again. How many times do you sing Hallelujah? We don't care, but in our songs we ought to present Christ, and there should be good harmony and uh, good rhythm, proper rhythm, okay, and then the rate in which you sing it. Um, I noticed one of the songs that uh, Van was leading. He he'll he'll tell everybody to sing softly. He does it very effectively. And I noticed the audience obeys. And then when he wanted to see something, and he goes over like this way. <laughs> right? You've seen him do it. That's Van Marcel. And But it's the rate in which you sing it, and it has to fit the song. You don't sing Abed, Abide With Me the same way you sing Hungry Christian Soldiers. And I get the same thing with the choruses. So I don't, the, the, the worship wars, yes, we had a, grand, a granddaughter go to the mission field to, to videotape mis, uh, um, missionaries. And one missionary said, do not do our worship service. And she said, why? She said, he said, because if that gets back to our supporting church, they'll drop our support because we use guitars in our service. Okay? That's worship wars, brother. I want you to know that. And so we have to be balanced and careful. Music, blend it. I'm done. <laughs> Uh, last question, and uh, for the sake of time, we have to try to limit it to you know about forty-five seconds to a minute. Uh, so, which I know is crunching you, but if there's one thing you can communicate to younger generations, what would that be? Doctor Dawes, start with you. Oh wow, I've got five things. <laughs> I think you I, I, I was hoping I'd hear you all whittling down. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking uh, at my list of you. Know, know your strengths, limitations, and weaknesses. Uh, we're not all the same. Uh, and it takes a little bit. Maybe there's somebody you admire, and you great learn from their abilities. But find out what how God designed you. That means your preaching voice, your leadership, uh, your relationship, how you relate to people. You know, God made you you, so be you. And that means He's given you strengths that you need to deal with. He's given you limitations, meaning you're not the whole body of Christ. Somebody else has to be involved. And then uh, there are weaknesses we all have. Uh, and you know, we, we need to deal with those, continue growing in Christ likenesses. So know yourself. Don't give up the teaching and preaching of the Word of God as much as you can get it in your people. That's right. so don't take away services. Make sure that's the central focus. Christ gave pastor teachers to the church as a gift. And if we don't fulfill the gift, to our people, we're, it's not going to go well for us at the judgment seat of Christ. Proverbs 27, 23 says, Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend your, your herds. Know your people. Visit every one of them. You may not do it the first day or the first month or the first year, but be sure you visit all of them. Um, love your wife. Keep your priorities. Very important. Spend time with your children. Love your people. There's only two things that you need to do is love your people and teach them. Love your people and teach them. One more thing. It disturbs me when people are using prayer as setup time. One of my men came to me one day and said, Pastor, how important is prayer to us? I said, it's basic. He said, then why do we use the time of prayer to organize things? And I said, I never thought of it. He said, just watch. 
during prayer, these people would be moving here, the ushers would be coming down, the choir. We went to a church one time, and when the pastor spoke, no one moved. Everybody was like this. But when they prayed, it was like Zeus loose. <laughs> the choir came down, the instruments came, all the instruments came down, the young people took their seats, the ushers came down. It was so move, much movement during prayer that I looked around to see what was going on. I could feel it, I could hear it. Um, my, we went to, I, when I went to Bibleville, I sold our people. I said, nobody moves during prayer. I don't want the song leader coming up during prayer. I don't want the ushers coming down during prayer. I don't want the musicians coming up during prayer. If we can't wait for a couple of seconds, we're in pretty bad shape. But prayer has to be the basic thing. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. Prayer? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, two verses. Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. John 17, 17. Sanctify them. Through thy word, thy word is truth. My exhortation to young men is commit yourself to read through the Bible every year. Continually keep reading through the Bible. And one of the things that I did one year, I read through the entire Bible, taking each book and reading it in one sitting. So even Psalm 150, I took a day, got up early in the morning and read all day until I read through the entire book of Psalms. That's good. Read through the scriptures. You'd be amazed how many pastors have never read through the whole Bible. Yeah, you're right. All right, well, thank you all so much for coming, and thank you to our panelists.